1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And this is your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source for music podcasts. In the wake of events that transpired a couple months ago, might I suggest checking out the podcast called Long May You Young, which focuses on the work of Neil Young. Oh, yeah. Uh, He has had such a fascinating career, and this podcast uh, is a font of all things Neil Young. And when you have listened to enough of that, come back and listen to see what uh, we have to offer. This is our 76th episode. Yeah, it is. So there's plenty to choose from. And maybe you want us to cover uh, a Neil Young album like Harvest or Mm. something like that. Russ never sleeps. Well, there's a way you can make sure that happens, right, Kyle?
2: Indeed there is. You can become... A back row, I'm sorry, a backstage back row. You can become a back row. You can become a back row. Just become a back row. Uh, Back row of seats, you can become that whole thing. No, you can become a patron and join our backstage pass tier. So at that tier, you get a bunch of stuff that our other tier gets, which we'll get to in just a second. You also get a special gift signed by both Matthew and I, which is <laughs> invaluable. We'll let Randy sign it too. If oh you yeah, really he gets to sign that. it. Uh, and on top of that, uh, you get to pick an episode of Audio Judo to host with us. Or if you don't want to host it with us, we'll host it for you. We don't really care. Right. You can make us listen to the worst album ever. If you are in a band, you can make us listen to your album. Which might be the worst album ever. It might be the worst album ever. We're going to be honest about it. Don't get me wrong. You're not paying for uh, uh, journalistic credibility. No. I guess is the right term for it. No, oh, not but, at all. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that tier is $20 a month. And in order to activate that option to record an episode with this, you have to do it for one full year and you only get to do it once. You can, however, if you do want to support the podcast and get a little bit of extra, you can also sign up for our front row seats tier. said that one, right? Yeah, you did. That is $5 a month. And for the $5 a month, you get regular episodes two days early. So you get them on Wednesday instead of Friday. You get some little bonus episodes that we call judo chops. Um, They usually focus on one subject and they're a lot of fun. Uh, And you also get uh, 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 a little bonus snippets pieces that we cut out of episodes because, uh, you know, we were farting and burping or we went off on a weird tangent or, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of weird things happen uh, that uh, we cut those out and sometimes we post them on our Patreon. So uh, you'll get a little bit of all of that. And on top of that, if you do go buy into the backstage past here, you get all of that as well. So
1: Wonderfully said, Kyle. I try my best without a script. So for this week's episode, Kyle continues his assault on me. I love just beating you over the head with uh, pop garbage. By once again choosing one of the most successful albums in music history. He likes to choose the big ones. I do. What can I say? And this is no exception. What did you choose? Def Leppard's Hysteria. Oh, the 1987 Goliath. Good lord, Kyle. (laughs) I feel Uh, like you're just methodically... Working your way down the line of all the Diamond Award winners.
2: That's pretty much what I'm doing. I just, I couldn't come up with albums on my own. So I was just like, you know what? What albums are really good? And then sort by which will piss Matthew off the most. That's why we started with Oasis and worked our way down. (laughs) It's a winner. Uh, (laughs) So Def Leppard. Right? What do you know about Def Leppard, Matthew? I know quite a bit about Def Leppard, actually. They were a rock band, uh, English rock band formed uh, in Sheffield, uh, which is in South Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, In 1977, originally, Rick Savage, Tony Kenning, and Pete Willis, uh, who were all students at Tapton School, uh, formed a band called Atomic Mass. Right? (laughs) Got your (laughs) Atomic Mass right here. Uh, Joe Elliott tried out for the band as a guitarist following a chance meeting with Willis after missing a bus in November 1977. (laughs) What a great way to meet somebody. 18 years
1: old at the time, yeah.
2: During his audition, uh, it was decided he would be a better lead singer than a guitarist. Which okay sure, uh, their first gig was in the dining hall at Westfield School in Mossboro, Sheffield, England. Um, Elliot was the first to propose the name Deaf Leopard, spelled D E A F L E O P A R D, the traditional spelling. Right,
1: as you would expect.
2: Yeah, which he thought of while working on band
1: posters in art class. <laughs> right, a which big is, jungle cat that can't see. Yeah, right. Makes sense.
2: Which is the most adorably like high school-y thing I've ever heard. Too. Right, What came up with Deaf Leopard in the art class. It's wonderful. <laughs> So, Do they have an uh, eye patch, you think? The I, leopard?
1: Two eye patches? Double eye patches. Or just like leopard. dark sunglasses.
2: I'm going to say. Uh,
1: uh, oh, yeah. you're right. Wow. But he had a big set of. What's like, in here? Right? Uh, he, uh, that's why I was like, he had an eye patch,
2: I guess. That would be cool. I don't know why I said that. Did he lead the. Where am I? Did he lead the January 6th insurrection? <laughs> yeah. Was he like,
1: uh, I'm uh, sorry? <laughs> that's
2: okay. It's fun to make fun of people's disabilities
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, continue Uh, Anyways,
2: they changed it to Deaf Leopard Spelled D-E-F-L-E-P-P-A-R-D Because they felt that Deaf Leopard The original, sounded too much like a punk band
1: Yeah Which, whatever Fair
2: enough Uh, January 1978, Steve Clark joins the band after a successful audition in which he played the entirety of Freebird That's incredible That's a pretty good audition Right Uh, November 1978, Tony Kenning uh, abruptly left the band just before they began recording for the Def Leppard EP Uh, A guy named Frank Noon filled in for those recordings on drums By the end of November 1978, Rick Allen, who was only 15 at the time, came on board as the band's full-time drummer 15 15 years old
1: Right. Very nice. join the join the group and an yeah. EP was recorded. Mm-hmm. Serious airplay was garnered on, oh, the, B- yeah. on the BBC as uh, uh DJ John Peel of the noted Peel Sessions yes. played their music regularly. Uh, their pr- popularity was beginning to take off and they were considered at the very top of the nuabum. Uh, uh the, you know what the nuwabum is? The new, new wave. wave of British heavy metal. Ah is what that stands the new for. New
2: wave of British heavy
1: metal. Yeah, nuabum. Uh as their original sound. Prior to hysteria was much louder and more aggressive than they would end up becoming. Continue. Very
2: very much more metal. Uh, They signed a record deal with Phonogram slash Vertigo slash Mercury Records, depending upon what part of the world you're in. Uh, And uh, they signed a new manager named Pete Minch after Joe Elliott got into a fistfight with their former manager. After an incident on the road. It happens. You know, their first full-length album, uh, On Through the Night, was released on March 14th, 1980. Made it to the top 15 in the UK, uh, but many of their loyal fans that they had garnered before this already didn't care for that album because was they it? felt it was pandering too much to American audiences.
1: Do you think maybe the single Hello America had something to do with that?
2: Possibly the single Hello America <laughs> had a little something
1: And to then think. touring the US with ACDC, Ted Nugent, and Pat Travers. Yuck, by yeah, the way. Ugh.
2: you know. <laughs> uh, sometime we have to do a whole episode that's just you telling Ted Nugent stories, by the oh, way, but we'll get back to fine. that. We'll get back to that
1: one. But the animosity uh, reached uh, an apex yes. at the Reading Music Festival when the band was pelted by beer cans and bottles filled with urine. <laughs> Yay, metal fans. <laughs> Go on. Right. <laughs> So it was during that tour that uh, the band met uh,
2: Robert John Muttlang, lang uh, who was the producer for ACDC, and he agreed to work on their
1: second album. Do you mean ex-Mr. Shania, Shania Twain?
2: Ex-Mr. Shania Twain, I believe
1: that I do, yes. Ex-Mr. Shania Twain.
2: Uh, yes, and he agreed to work on them with their second album, which was called High and Dry. Uh, which was released on July 6th, 1981. And while Mutt's production techniques and detailed studio work helped the band begin to define their sound better, its sales were a little lackluster.
1: I do have Um, that defined as Lang's notorious methodical approach.
2: Oh, there you go. That's a good one. (laughs) It it did peak at 26 in the UK and number 38 in the US, which is nothing to to shrug at.
1: But but why? Why? Why did it peak that high? Because bringing on the heartache... Was played, it was one of the first metal videos ever played on MTV, yes. and it was all over the place. Mm-hmm.
2: And that was 1982. Mm-hmm. It was hugely popular and became incredibly well requested on MTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they began recording their next album, Pyromania. Uh, Pete Willis was fired July 1982 due to
1: excessive alcohol consumption on the job. Now, if you know anything about Def Leppard, <laughs> that must be excessive. With oh a capital God. E. Oh my God! How much do you have to be drinking to get fired from Def Leppard? Uh, I'm si- and then so he's replaced the very next day by Phil Collin. That's Collin. Not Phil Collins.
2: Not uh, Phil Collins.
1: At this time, the drummer and lead singer of the not-so-progressive band Genesis.
2: I'm sorry, I was busy while you were talking about excessive drinking, doing some excessive drinking. Um, uh,
1: Phil Collins. Yes. Had been in the band Girl, and his addition to the band Girl. Would, would, for, would formulate the lineup for the band that would be on Hysteria. But before Hysteria was made, mm-hmm. there would be one more album. Pyromania.
2: Which was released on January 20th, 1983, and went on to sell six million copies in 1983 alone, over 100,000 copies every week. It is often considered the turning point in popularity for hair metal music in the 1980s, yeah. which makes sense. Uh, it was actually kept from the number one spot by Michael Jackson's Thriller,
1: which. As were many albums.
2: Yes, I mean, absolute juggernaut of an album to be, to say, well, we didn't beat Thriller.
1: But <laughs> Photograph yes. became the number one requested video on MTV, mm-hmm. besting Michael Jackson's Beat It. Kick the shit out of Beat It. A song you may have heard once or twice. A
2: few times,
1: yes. And held the number one position on the rock charts for six weeks. Indeed it did. Rock of Ages, the second single from the record, also would get to number one on the charts. Mm-hmm. And for me, that song is the one that really defined the Def Leppard sound. Yes. Or at least the vocal sound. So a couple of years ago... We did an episode about rotating rosters in rock music. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. Uh, we talked about Yes, Van Halen, Journey, and a few others. But I remember pointing out that the sound of the background vocals for both Yes and Van Halen are instantly recognizable. If you had to identify a band and all they gave you was the background vocalists in a chorus, I would have no problem telling you who it was if it was one of those two bands. Def Leppard is the third. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I got a hair in my mouth <laughs> I don't know how that happened uh, Please keep going, sorry It is completely different than any other band Their background vocal sound It sounds like a mob Yes uh, It has a growl in it And Mutlang loved to pitch voices up and down And his layering of their voices in background Became a very recognizable part of their sound And it was in Rock of Ages That really became something you attached to Def Leppard In my opinion, go on Kyle
2: so I was going to say the, the, um, the two singles from this, uh, Rock of Ages and Photograph, held a spot on the top 20 of the Hot 100 at the same time. Uh, Photograph was at number 12 and Rock of Ages at number 16. However, it was not particularly successful in the UK. It did reach number 18 on the album charts, but the sales weren't great. Um, however, it is certified diamond in the U.S. with over 10 million copies sold.
1: But people, so just a few people uh, loved it here. Yes, and at the time they were deemed more popular in the states than the Stones, than mm-hmm. ACDC, yep. or even Journey at that time, which is massive. It's huge. But in uh, the UK, me incredibly not so unpopular. Much.
2: They had lost their fan base there. Yeah. However, now comes. In our story, a quite unexpected term. So Def Leppard is hugely successful at this point. They're known world, the world over, incredibly successful in the United States, and their albums are selling faster than almost any other artist in history. They began working on their next album, which would eventually become Hysteria, uh, in February 1984. However, on December 31st, 1984, Rick Allen was driving on the A57 just outside of Sheffield uh, with his girlfriend Miriam Bardson in the car. When he lost control of his Corvette, swerved off the road on a sharp bend and went through a dry stone wall. As a result of that car crash, Rick lost his left arm. Now, Matthew, mm. as a drummer, mm-hmm. uh, is having two arms pretty important? Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh... I,
2: I'm, thank you for pausing to think about
1: it. Well, I know. had to think about it for a second.
2: This is this is the fact, the idea of losing the ability to play your instrument is is devastating. Uh-huh. That to me must be, have been the most the, the biggest mental break you could possibly imagine. Yeah. But Rick was determined to continue playing the drums and wanted to stay with the band, and the band supported him hundred percent and they backed him up. Yeah. Uh,
1: let's walk it back a little bit. They yeah. were they were determined not to make Pyromania two when they set out to make this yes. record. They were interested in moving away from rock elements, more pop. Uh, originally, they came out of the. They came out swinging and named their record Animal Instinct before they had written Mm -hmm. a thing. They hadn't written a song, which is a weird way to go about it. A little weird. But what would end up happening was one of the strangest, expensive, and longest album conception periods (laughs) ever. So they tapped Mutt Lang again. So before uh, Rick Allen's accident, they tapped Mutt Lang again to produce, but uh, before... Uh, Pre-production could even finish in 84 He dropped out Yeah, he was exhausted Right, and a quick internet search will tell you That between the release of Pyromania And the start of production for Hysteria He produced one album Mm -hmm. Heartbeat City by The Cars Mm -hmm. Not sure how grueling that was (laughs) But Lang is a weird dude As we will see So he leaves the band, right? Band decides to bring in Jim Steinman
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Songwriter for Meatloaf Rest in peace Riding that sweet, sweet bat out of hell wave. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people have the incorrect assumption that Steinman produced bat out of hell. No. But that was actually Todd Rundgren, mm-hmm. who we recently did a judo chop on. Sign we up, did indeed. Sign up for our Patreon to check that out. But Steinman was just the songwriter. And he brought a way different vision to these sessions. He wanted a raw sound, and Leopard wanted a more refined pop sound.
2: Yeah, I definitely feel like in reading all the notes about this, that he wanted something that was that 80s sound that absolutely would have been Oh yeah, very, you know, very synth heavy and very of oh. the time of the 1980s, not what they eventually ended up creating.
1: For sure. So uh, their sessions began with engineer Neil the Dorf Dorfman. Oh, as I like yeah. To call him, in the summer of 84. But they quickly clashed oh. as the band did not care for Steinman's theatrical approach, something that had served him well. With the loaf, so by October the band fired them both. Yeah, Dorfman immediately flew to Montserrat <laughs> to record Dire Straits' "Brothers in Arms," another album we talked about on the show. See, Kyle, yes. they're all connected. They are all connected. They are all connected. And literally, it is my understanding he quite
2: literally was fired. Like, went home, packed his bag, went to the airport, and flew off to Montserrat. And they just
1: made a little money but, for nothing, you know, you know. and and got his chicks chicks for free. For free.
2: But uh, yeah, they, the, I, I'm super happy that the band did support Rick uh, to continue because they. he actually had to sort of figure it out again. Oh, he, he they, they left him learn. alone. Yeah. They put him in another studio yep. and they were like, go practice, go figure it out on your own. So he, he tried all kinds of different things. He used his legs to supplement his playing. He designed an electronic drum kit uh, that... Would allow him to play one handed? Yes.
1: Him and Simmons, yes. uh, the company Simmons, yes. uh, worked together to develop a lot of foot pedal type things that would help him play the drums again. And I don't know if I mentioned this at the outset, but I consider Def Leppard the most snake bit band in the history of music. They are mm-hmm. snake bit because no sooner does Rick Allen come back, yeah. Mutt Lang's in a car accident. Yeah. Hurts his arm, right? Right. Suffers his own car accident. He had leg injuries. And then Joe Elliott. Gets the mumps, (laughs) further delaying the writing of this record. Snake bit. Snake bit. So as they set out to write this record with Lang, he was intent on making a rock and roll version of Thriller. Yes. Essentially a record that is stuffed with singles. And Lang never just produces a record, he also writes a lot of the material, and he is obsessed with mm. getting every sound exactly right, to the point of spending hours or even days on one guitar part. You probably saw this same thing when I say one guitar part. Yes. I mean, I don't mean the rhythm guitarist playing his part of the song all the way through. Oh, no. No, no, no. I mean the guitarist sat down and played one note over and over for the duration of the song, and then moved to another note, Mm
3: -hmm. and
1: so on, so that every note had its own track. Yeah. As a result, this album would take three years to get made, would cost the band $5 million to make. The band would need to sell that amount of records just to break even.
2: Yeah. David Simone, the managing director for Phonogram Records at the time, said the album might have been the most expensive record ever made in the UK up to that point. And according to guitarist Phil Cullen, the album had to sell a minimum of five million copies. Yeah, five to million. Break even.
1: Five dollars, five million. Yeah. Just to break even. So, but it was not an instant seller. No. Right away when it was released August 3rd, 1987. I'm sure you have the gargantuan vital statistics yes. for this record. So
2: eventually. Hysteria, big, di- Hysteria did become Def Leppard's best selling album with over 20 million copies sold worldwide. This also puts it in the top 100 albums by sales of all time. The exact position I cannot determine because every single source puts it in a different spot. <laughs> So thank you for that, Internet. It's gone 12 times platinum in the U.S., meaning it sold 12 million copies. Two times platinum in the U.K., meaning it sold 600,000 copies. Four times platinum in Australia at 280,000 copies. Diamond in Canada, which makes it at 1 million. Platinum in New Zealand for 15,000. Switzerland for 50,000. Gold in Norway and Sweden for 50,000 apiece. It charted in Australia at number one. Uh, I'm sorry, it started at number one in Australia, Norway, New Zealand, UK, and the US a full year after its release in the US and number two in Sweden and Switzerland. It spent 96 weeks in the US top 40, <laughs> tied in the top spot for ni- for the entirety of the 1980s with Born in the USA. Oh, wow. Uh, going back to the every song a hit thing that we talked about, uh, yep. uh, Mutlang's uh, thing, yep. Animal was the first single released for this album. Not in the U.S., but we'll get to that. Started a run of 10 consecutive U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Top 40 singles for Def Leppard. Seven from this album alone, including Women, Animal, Hysteria, Pour Some Sugar On Me, Love Bites, Armageddon, Armageddon It, and Rocket. Mm -hmm. Aside from Women, the remaining six made the Top 25 U.K. singles chart as well. It also won the 1989 American Music Award for favorite heavy metal slash hard rock album. Def Leppard also won for favorite heavy metal slash hard rock artist that same year. Unbelievable how popular and amazing this album is. So
1: it sold well. It was reviewed well. Right. It received four and five stars in every publication. Some have called it the best pop metal album of all time. It was placed at number 464 on Rolling Stone's list of top 500 albums of all time, which is not necessarily a ringing endorsement of the album, but at least it's on the list. Yeah. Me, personally, lean on the side of pop sellout. And I'm sure a lot has to do with the mechanized drum sound that dominated the record. So I completely understand the necessity of it. I get it. And them standing behind him, I think, is fantastic. And I've, I've always thought it was amazing that he completely reinvented himself as a drummer. And ref he revolutionized the drums as a whole. Yeah. But the thin electronic pad sounds always affected my sensibilities as a drummer. And I've always wondered how this album would sound if it were made today. Ooh. 35 years of technology upgrades where we can make electronic drums sound like acoustic drums. I think it would sound so much different than it does in its that current be, form.
2: That would be a fantastic like, re-release right? to th- completely re-record it from the beginning to end. I think it'd be fantastic. Ooh.
1: So I never owned this record. So the summer of 87... Towards the end of the summer of 87, I was working up in northern Michigan. Uh, The season was winding down and my family and I were getting ready to return to Metro Detroit and start my sophomore year in high school. Uh, I was working at the Old Mill Creek State Park in the concession stand and was friends uh, with a bunch of people who loved this record. I had liked Pyromania, but didn't really love that album either either. Something about the strain in Joe Elliott's voice mm-hmm. never really appealed to me for some reason. And because I was a lyric guy, I couldn't understand most of the shit that he was saying. Um, <laughs> they were always garbled to me, so I didn't listen to it. Uh, but the following summer, the summer of 88, this album had exploded and it was everywhere. I would end up borrowing it from a friend, thanks Ben, uh, and listen to it all the way through exactly one time. <laughs> and until doing the research for this episode, that is exactly the amount of times I had listened to this album all the way through. Wow. One time. I am most definitely not a Def Leppard fan. Obviously, it has been hard to avoid all of the hits from this record for the last 35 years. And some of the album is pretty good, but it suffers from overproduction. It's bloated.
2: Oh, oh, it is absolutely a way overproduced album.
1: 62 minutes of this stuff is a lot.
2: I have a question in here that I want to ask. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So going back to Mutt Lang's thing, we want to make an album where every track is a single, every track is a hit. Does that make this an album? And if it does, is it a good album? Mm, That's a tough question. I I still don't have an answer to that question. I can't answer that. If you have just made a whole bunch of hit singles in a row and then slapped them together and said, it's an album, is this actually an album?
1: And I, then I think, so I don't remember, we had this discuss we had a discussion a long time ago about like a concept album that sometimes it's not necessarily the music that makes it a concept record or the lyrics that make it a concept record, but the sound of the record yes. ties the whole thing as one Concept and if 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 we go by that definition, then this absolutely is a record because it sounds the same
3: Mm -hmm.
1: every song on here. Like uh, producer Randy, he gives us uh, he gives us sound bites before we start recording of every song that we're gonna play on here, and he gives us like three three to five seconds at a time. Well, he was skipping through; it was hard to discern (laughs) from one song to the other which what song it was. So. Obviously, the production has a has a through line, and it all sounds the same. So I would definitely call it an album. I would just call it a bloated <laughs> album. It was 62 minutes, and yeah. I don't think it holds up very well. And that's why if you re-recorded it mm-hmm. now, I think it would sound a lot different than it sounded back then. But I'm going to do my best to be unbiased about it, but I'm probably going to fail miserably. So <laughs> uh, you have more? You want to go to the cover art? Or- let's, uh,
2: let's talk about the cover, because the cover for this... I didn't know this before going into this. Bonkers. It turns out to be amazing. Yeah. It was good to begin with, but it turns out to be amazing. So the cover is a distorted face inside of a triangle. Uh, the face blends and melts into the background imagery. Uh, surrounding it are some neon lines and symbols, Def Leppard across the top, Hysteria across the bottom. Um, Ross Halfin, uh, who was the photographer, one of the photographers for this, is a British-born rock and roll photographer. It's
1: iconic. Yeah. He, he's he's taken pictures of pretty much everybody.
2: In huge acts. Uh, Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Black Sabbath, The Who, Kiss, Metallica, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Van Halen, yep. among hundreds of others. Uh, Laurie Lewis, another rock and roll photographer who did some work for this. Long history. and uh, Starting in the 1960s, he's worked with huge bands like the Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Joni Mitchell, Eric Clapton, Pete Townshend, and many, many, many more. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, uh, Andy Airfax. Airfix. Airfix. Of uh, the Satori Graphic Design Group. Uh, made the cover and sleeve design for this album. Uh, Andy had this to say in, quote, the, I'm sorry, in an article called The Story Behind Def Leppard's Hysteria Album Artwork by Team Rock, published on Louder.com October 7th, 2016. Quote, it was a typical Def Leppard brief. I was given virtually no information. The album was originally going to be called Animal Instinct, so I created a sleeve around that. I was into the idea of having something turning into... I'm sorry, turning around to look at you, so that illustration had an eagle, a lion, and a shark, which all blended into each other. Then they changed the title to Hysteria, so we had to totally rework things. The triangle was a recognizable image for leopard fans, so that seemed a good starting point. Then it was just a case of creating something that was frightening in some respects. The full-on face we used is almost human, but the side view isn't, retaining the animal aspect. The idea was that this (coughs) thing turning around to face you made it
1: scarier. Yeah. Right, it's good. Yeah, and it should be good. He had two years to right? work on he the cover, which is an eon in the industry where you're normally given like, hey, uh, this goes to press in two weeks. Can yeah. you get us an album cover? Like, uh, okay,
2: he had two years. Right. Uh, he goes into Andy goes into great detail. If you go to andyairfix.wordpress.com, that is spelled A N D I E A. I-R-F-I-X.wordpress.com. He has the whole story of designing these covers because the real story of this cover isn't the album cover. It is the single covers.
1: Oh yeah. They're all individual. (laughs) Yeah.
2: He designed nine different single covers. And the idea was that. He knew they were going to release a lot of singles, so he designed nine individual covers that all fit together to make the cover of this album. So if you bought all nine singles, you could hang a mural on your wall, a three-by-three three mural of these album covers. Right. And it looks awesome. Yep. Uh, from the article, uh, The Awesome Secret Hiding Behind Def Leppard's Hysteria Singles by Matthew Wilkening, uh, published in ultimateclassicrock.com on August 17, 2020, Andy is quoted from his website as saying, quote, hysteria was the first time I had to create artwork for CDs and I realized the new format could be the death knell for vinyl. It was a defining moment for me. I hated the CD format, its size, it's limited packaging possibilities. And most of all, I hated how it would destroy a medium. I loved vinyl. I knew for the singles, I had to come up with something that had never been done before and would probably never be done again. Mm. That I immediately gained a ton of respect for this guy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Right? Uh, But yeah, like I said, he designed this huge Merle, Merle, this huge Merle Haggard. (laughs) He designed a huge Merle Haggard to go on the wall. He designed a huge mural Mural? to go on the wall. Murinal.
1: (laughs) It's a murinal. It's
2: a murinal. Any of my uh, uh, Parks and Rec fans out there will get that one. Uh Uh, Yeah, but there were a whole bunch of challenges involved with that. And he tells the entire story on his website. Um, It's andyairfix.com. Go check it out it he He goes into so much detail. It is I would say probably eight thousand words long. It is a huge article. That's a lot of detail articles about designing this, where he got the ideas. um originally, there like I said earlier, there were only seven singles released from this album. he He had nine designs, and so the mural could never be completed until the hysteria singles box set came out in twenty eighteen. Uh, when they ex- uh, when they attached uh, another one to excitable and another one to love and affection, so you could finally complete the entire mural.
1: Ah, sweet Jesus! Right,
2: uh, your favorite. <laughs> Yay, it's done! Right, so let's uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do a track by track. How about that?
1: Don't smother nature is a one stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com.
2: women Matthew
3: <laughs> you want, want to talk about
2: women <laughs> I love women I love uh love their love when you grab and it feels like a sandbag that's that's I heard this hot.
1: about heard this about you
2: that's uh that's really I a- know the first single from this album very interesting in choice
1: huh for Great. singles it was not the first single in the UK no. but, but in the States you know why they released it as the the first single? The I US, do, though, actually, you? because... Because they
2: wanted to show the fans what they were all about.
1: So their manager at the time, the seemingly manager to everyone and uh, leader of Q Prime, Cliff Bernstein, uh, said they should have a rockier song as the first single, knowing that the rest of the record was generally softer mm-hmm. and might alienate some of their current fans. Hmm. And it came in like a dud. <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> Number 80 on the top... 100. And there was a lot of fear around the Def Leppard camp that because of the soft response, that the album could be a failure. Yeah, And if it indeed was a failure, it was going to be a colossal failure. Oh my
2: God, yeah. three What, three and a half years to record it and then...
1: Right. But even with the three and a half year gap, they were riding some of the coattails of Pyromania because while the song landed like a dud, the album sold one and a half million copies before the next single, Animal... Mm -hmm. would be released just two months later, and that's pretty good name recognition. Indeed it is. But think about the subject matter here.
2: (laughs) If you are trying to... Oh, I do all the time, but please continue. If you're
1: trying to appeal to your base in the States, which at this point is generally dudes who are chasing women, then this song was the perfect opener. One part love, one part wild, one part lady, and one part child. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure how that sentiment would go over these days, but yeah. in the era of the era of hair metal of right. the crew of Van Halen and Warrant and Great White and Guns and Roses and all the objectification of women that you can muster, skin on skin let the love begin, Kyle. Oh boy. Have a little listen. <laughs> Even if this was the hardest song on the record, it's not that hard. No. Musically, it's just OK. There's nothing earth shattering here. And that's all right. But for all the talk about being this being such a meticulously recorded album. Yeah. And all of the care that went into it, it's pretty ordinary.
2: I feel like the uh, everything else that we're going to say about this album, ont- I, I feel like it is a pop album. It oh, is a pop oh, album. Sure. It is one hundred percent a pop album, and it, it always goes back to that. Every track is a single thing. Every single track on this is designed as a pop song. Every single track on this, regardless of what the band actually wanted, regardless of Mutlang's right original ideas, every single track on this is a pop song. Even the ones that didn't hit could have
1: been hits. Could have been. I, I think you hit the key right there. Regardless of what the band wanted. Yeah. This is how it was going to end up. Yes. It's forgettable. And there's some really great modulations towards the end. So a little key change thing mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, that's different. But it you, you forget about it right away. And that's yes. most likely why it died a really quick death on yeah. the charts. It's just like, but they have keyboards in it. They do? Yeah, there's some keyboards in this song by Philip Art School Nicholas, <laughs> who, who, who had a, that's his name. Yeah. Uh, who what had a, great a Had a bit of a minor career playing keyboards. He released a few solo records to no great acclaim. But uh, yeah, hmm. you know, Art School Nicholas.
2: Art School Nicholas. Did he ever ride a rocket?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. This fucking song.
3: <laughs> if there is a
1: reason to really not like this album, This song is it. Are you kidding me? First of all, it's seven minutes long. It
2: is a very long song. Why is it seven minutes long? long? Let's talk about that really quick. For a pop album... Every track on this is very long. Have you noticed that? Yep. Every, normally pop songs, there's a, there's a three-minute rule. Three-minute rule. unspoken three-minute rule where if it's a pop song, if it's going to be played on the radio, you, you squeeze it in around three minutes. Some of them are a little shorter. Some of them are a little longer. Sure. You generally squeeze it around three minutes. I don't think there's a song under four minutes. I don't think album. there is either.
1: I don't think there's even close. <laughs> it's, it, the last two minutes – Are just ridiculous studio filler and nonsense, samples of later songs, vocal chants like monks, extended breakdown, and what Guitar World magazine (laughs) called the 17th worst guitar solo in the history of rock music, (laughs) saying, quote, any four-year-old with a rack-mounted effects unit could play that. Now, just to be clear, while I am not a huge fan of Def Leppard, I am not one of those guys that thinks the song always has to have a guitar solo to be good, nor do I think that a guitar solo has to have a bunch of tapping and shredding and histrionics to be good. But I do believe it has to be good to be good. Fair enough. And this one ain't. (laughs) So put aside all the the back masking that they used Let go of the sampled Apollo radio chatter scattered throughout Ignore the tacked-on tribal drum pattern that helps end the song It's the name-checking in the song that is so hokey and crappy and silly And I just don't get it You know
2: what, though? You want a whole list of this name-check? Jack Flash from the Rolling Stones Rocket Man from Melton John Sgt. Pepper from the Beatles Ziggy Stardust from David Bowie Benny and the Jets from Melton John Satellite Light of Love from Lou Reed Laser Love Not in the single edit From uh, T-Rex uh, T-Rex Excuse me I almost said t Uh Jet from Paul McCartney And Wings Black Black is taken from uh, Ram Jams Black Betty Also possibly Jet Black A.K.A. Brian John Duffy Yeah The drummer from the punk band The Stranglers The Stranglers Yeah Johnny B. Good from uh, Chuck, Chuck Berry's Berry. Johnny B. Good, Gene uh, Genie from David Bowie, Killer Queen from Queen Dizzy Lizzy from the Beatles' Dizzy Miss Lizzy, or a shout out to Thin Lizzy, Major Tom from David Bowie, and Blockbuster from The Sweet. Right. Talk about, they're literally saying like, hey, here's all the greats that whose shoulders we're standing on to make our own goddamn album.
1: So That's originally, literally what they're doing. Originally, this song was supposed to be an instrumental mm-hmm. with just the titular, Rocket, Yeah. yeah. But they decided to do an homage to 60s music. And uh, I, really, I really just don't you like it. You hate
2: this song, don't you? I can tell just from the way you're talking about it. You can admit it, Matt. You uh, can they, say I hate this song. And
1: they seem to like to play with words a little. Rock it. That's supposed to be rock it. it. Yeah? Just like yeah. we will see later with Armageddon it. Oh Are I, you getting it? <laughs> it's just weak, just man. Weak. And I'm sorry, but any song that says guitar, drums, at the beginning is probably (laughs) not going to be liked by me well here Matthew have a little listen maybe you'll change your mind okay Such a hacky thing to do. <laughs> the only time I have ever heard that successfully used is in For Those About to Rock, We Salute You by ACDC. Very, ah, very effective use of the guitar drums call out. All right. But that being said, though, hmm. this was the seventh single released. Yes, it was. The seventh, seventh single. And it came out as a single in January 1989, almost 16 months after the album was released.
2: It hit the top 15 on both the US and UK singles hey, charts. Hey, so once again, if you're looking at it from sales standpoint, it's
1: incredibly say? successful. Hey, it sold a bunch of records. You animal. Now this is a great fucking song. <laughs> it is huh? hands down my favorite record or favorite song on the record. Probably my favorite Def Leopard's song. Yeah,
2: and it was their first real hit in the UK as well. Right.
1: Lead single in the UK, second mm-hmm. single in the States, uh, number 19 in the States, number six in the UK. Song took two and a half years to record correctly. <laughs>
2: two and a half years to record this song correctly. The demo of this song is the only one on Hysteria where Rick Allen played an acoustic drum kit
1: before his accident. His accident. Yeah.
2: So here's a little clip of it. <laughs> I'm not afraid to There's see, a lot of huh in this see, album. So I
1: didn't know uh, all these years that I liked this song, that mm-hmm. it took almost three years to write this song. And then I right? go back and listen to it and go, what, why? Why did it, hey, ma- yeah, hey, you're messing with my camera, bro. Oh, my
2: bad. Oh, boy. Do we need to take a second so you can fix that? No,
1: it's fine. He's just Brandy, pulling. Randy,
2: would you be kind enough to hand me one of those? He was yanking
1: well? on the cable. Like, both? <laughs> Hand me a beer if you wouldn't mind. So the lyrics... Appreach. The lyrics aren't half bad either, although it is another song about animal lust. Lines like, I cry wolf, given mouth to mouth, like a moving heartbeat in the witching hour. Not sure what it means, but it isn't horrible. At least it's animal lust and not bestiality. <sighs> but if you are going to name check, like the last song, or reference someone else, this is how you do it. All right. The line... Just like the rust, I never sleep is an obvious and fantastic reference to Neil Young and his album Rust Never Sleeps. Oh, that's how you do it! All yeah, right. don't All just right. yell out Thin Lizzy really loud and think, "Neil, yay, okay. Neil!" That's Neil how you do it. And while on the grill, and while the guitar part suffers from that 1980s clean sound, yeah, it is a per- pretty decent part written by Phil Collin. Yeah, not Phil. You Collins. know, Phil
2: Collin uh, wrote the original version of this song which he recorded as a demo uh, and from an interview with songfacts.com he said quote we'd revisit it and i remember we were recording vocals in paris for something and one day joe had done this vocal and mutlang had said wow that vocal's killer let's rewrite the song around that so we did it and in our first english top 10 single so and it became our first english top 10 single so it was worth waiting
1: uh agreed i like it I, I've always, I, I've always loved that song.
3: I, I
2: find it interesting that this is the song that you like from this album. I yeah. don't know why, but uh, I find that for some reason it, it strikes me as odd.
1: Yeah, I just do.
2: I'm glad you like it. Yeah, uh, love bites, Matthew. It
1: certainly does, and I do kind of like this song too, as it Good. sounded much different than most things out there at the time. It's a power ballad, but there's a lot of emptiness in the song. Not like uh, typical hair hair metal power ballads of the day, which wanted like full orchestrations. This benefited from all the gaps and the different sounds used in it, especially the background vocals, which featured the typical leopard sound, but were mixed real high. Yeah. uh, Less growl in in their sound. And of course, the song is a double entendre. Indeed it is. Love bites means that love sucks and hurts. Love bites. But also-
2: (laughs) You got a hickey. Love bites. Exactly. Uh, yeah, apparently this actually started out as a country ballad that they wrote uh, before being transformed into a power ballad. Well, who wrote it? Uh, I don't know. Do you have that information? Mutt Lang wrote Mutt it. Mutt Lange wrote it. Yeah. What a
1: surprise. And all of the background vocals on the song are performed by Lang, who at this point is a de facto sixth member of the group. Yeah, he wrote it on the acoustic guitar, and it was a, it was a country song. Yeah, and it does, it does have a – go ahead. No, it's also the only track with keyboards. Uh, That's true. (laughs) Weirdly enough. And it has a great solid bass line, courtesy of Rick Savage. Uh, He's a solid player, nothing fancy about his bass work. Uh, He did uh, contract Bell's palsy in 1994, which does affect his stamina when they play live. But Hmm. but I think his work is all right. Kyle, are you familiar with the controversy surrounding this song? I am not. Please continue. So if you listen to the song all the way to the end you can hear some oh. mumbling in the background. Mm,
2: okay, I yes, I know what you're talking about.
1: Uh, and it is right after if you have loving your sights watch out because love bites. What is seemingly heard is Jesus of Nazareth go to hell. Mm-hmm. And the band has refuted this for many years and it's really obvious that's not what is being said. Yeah. Uh, what you hear is Mutlangs uh voice through a vocoder saying, "Yes, it does bloody hell." Bloody hell. Uh, I, I feel like this falls in that
2: same, you know, when you play when you play this song backwards, you hear like all hell
1: Satan in his glory. That's what I heard. Like, Can I play Hysteria backwards? That's exactly what I heard. What's
2: the uh, if you if you play another one bites the dust backwards, smoke marijuana?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that one's true. That one is true. That one's true. But but as far as controversies like go that. in rock music, I'd give this one like a three. It's
2: like a three. Three on a scale of one to 27 to, to 35? Yes. Okay, fair that, enough.
1: That is exactly, that is the Brian Kissed scale. The Brian Kissed, the
2: Brian scale. Kissed <laughs> scale. Oh, I hope he listens to this. Brian, if you listen, email us info at audiojudo.com. I want to know that you're listening. Uh, yeah, here's a little quick, uh me, i having having a stroke. Here's a little clip of Love Bites. Fifth single released in the U.S., third everywhere else in the world, hit number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and top ten in Canada, Ireland, and New Zealand, number 11 in the U.K. So, again, incredibly popular single. It's a pretty good song. Chicks dig it. Chicks do dig it. And you know what else they dig?
1: Pour some sugar Pour on some me. some sugar
2: on me. This That's why is, I said that. This is the Def Leppard song. This I As much as they can't stand that that's what they're associated with. They absolutely want to blow their brains out every time they have to fucking play this song in concert. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Rat, where they're like, here's round and round. And everyone in the crowd goes, "Ah." and then they play six other songs, and they're like, "Mm." and then they're like, all right, here's round and round again. "Ah." (laughs) So at this the, is this is Def Leppard's round and round. It is That's, the, that should be the opposite way of comparing this. But go on, pour some sugar on.
1: At me. this point, right before the release of this single in April '88, the album had sold over three million copies, mm-hmm. two less than the five needed to cover their costs <laughs> and start making money. Rest assured, two million less. Yeah, not just two, less, not just two, not, not just two. Two records. less. It, <laughs> sold, it sold
2: four, four. million nine hundred ninety thousand nine hundred ninety eight <laughs> copies. And then stopped.
1: Two and less. And they were like,
2: fuck, we need to sell two more before we break even. Forget it. And they were like, we can't do that. Sorry. But then magically, pour some sugar on me. The single comes out. Right. They
1: sold two extra copies of the album. And it's done.
2: Boom. Exploded. Right. They would fa- Thanks, mom and dad. You bought one to copy. <laughs> That's two copies. It, I can do
1: mad. It blew the doors off everything and set them up financially for the rest of their lives. It was the fourth oh, yeah. fourth single released. We'll get to number two on the charts, being held off the top spot by the king of Twitter himself, Richard Marks, and his <laughs> song, Hold On to the Nights.
2: Hold on to the
3: Nights.
1: So great.
2: Oh, it is a good song. However, I got to say, this was another one of those examples that we talk about that come up all the time on this, this podcast. Last minute.
1: Complete afterthought.
2: Complete afterthought. They wrote and recorded this song like last minute. It came together in the last week. The band was doing the final recordings for this album. The record company didn't even want them to do this song. They were like, fuck you. You're way over budget. You've been doing this for two and a half plus years. You're done. Please end this. And they recorded this song, blasted it out onto the album, became their number one biggest hit of all time.
1: Yeah. Elliot was messing around on the acoustic guitar in the studio. Lang heard him playing this riff, got excited about it. So he set up two recorders. Uh, and put a, ru- a drum loop together yeah. He put him on one side of the studio Elliot on the other side of the studio And they recorded a bunch of nonsense vocals And stream of consciousness <laughs> style They went to opposite ends of the studio
2: Recorded into little personal recorders yeah. And then switched and wrote down What each other thought they were saying
3: yeah, <laughs> Which la- is
2: crazy Why would you write a song <laughs> like this? Why would you be like, hey Matthew We're going to do an episode, but what I'm going to do I'm going to record my lines, but okay. I'm going to be like <laughs> <laughs> and then you're going to go and you're going to record, and then we're going to read each other's parts to record a podcast episode.
1: All right, I'm going to write it down and go, I think, Kyle, what you said here was, jam, I'm a mama.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what right, I said. That's what we're going to say. We're going to record it that way. It's going to Why be great. would you do that? But it ends up making,
1: love is like a bone, baby, come and get it on. Right? Love is like a bomb, baby, come and get it on. <laughs> <sighs> They're nonsense. But it's, it doesn't matter. It's a party song. Yeah. And once again- not a fan of Def Leppard, it's hard to deny the appeal of this song. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So when I saw Def Leppard in 88 with Guns N' Roses and White Snake, it was interesting to watch the changing gender demographics throughout the course of the night. So Guns N' Roses because of its harder style had a lot of guys at the beginning. White Snake had more women and by Pink the Dick time energy go yep. on. and by the time Def Leppard it was came on it was 50-50 with most of the women at the front and this song had a lot To do with that. Oh, yeah. This song is obviously about sex, and this is a hair metal group after all. So they asked Joe Elliott if he had ever poured sugar on anyone. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, after some shows, we would pour an entire bag of sugar over a girl after she had been dipped in hot water. She seemed (laughs) to be enjoying it. See, it's rock and roll, people. Rock and roll. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, you know, we did it. (laughs) We poured actual sugar on girls. Have, Have a listen to this song if you've never heard it because you've been living under a rock. Step
3: inside, walk
0: this way, you and me, babe.
3: The
2: single version uh, is is the one that starts with "Love is like a bomb" and then it kind of echoes over and over again. Uh, the which is longer. Uh, I take that back. Uh,
1: the, album ver- the album version. The is album version. The album
2: version. Yeah. Reached number two in the U.S. after being remixed for a more pop music sound. Which how do you get more pop music than this? <laughs> And it sent, uh, and sent to a whole bunch of pop radio stations. It was kept out of the numbers. Like you said, kept it out of the number one spot where Richard Marks hold on to the night. It hit number 18 on the UK singles chart and number 26 in Australia. Considered Def Leppard's signature song. It was ranked number two on VH1's 100 greatest songs of the eighties after living on a prayer by Bon Jovi took number one, which fair enough, living on a prayer. Pour Some Sugar on Me, a lot of people sing along to. Living on a Prayer hits, everybody sings along yeah, to. Yeah, it,
1: it. it's true.
2: Tommy me you work on the die <laughs> You just go. You don't even think about it. You just start singing, and you can't help yourself. That's true. Everybody knows, right? everybody knows the words. Living on a Prayer, everybody knows the words to that. Pour Some Sugar on Me, a little bit more repetitive, so a lot of people know the words, but it just doesn't quite evoke the same thing. But still... An absolutely massive hit. How many times do you think you've heard this song in your life, Matthew? Uh, too without many. Without trying, without trying.
1: Um, a thousand. Thousand, probably. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean, that's probably average. Yeah, it, it's
1: all over the. It's bonkers. Still, all, this all over the song place. is just huge. Uh, but, Armageddon, it.
2: Are you getting it?
1: Armageddon Armageddon
2: it. it. The sixth single released uh, in the US reached number three on the singles charts. I don't know how it did, but it did. And the album at the time had been out for 17 months <laughs> when this single was released and reached
1: that high on the chart. And this, this is when the band attempted to get a little political, yeah. especially in their live shows. During the shows on a screen, which I can't remember how they did because the show was actually in the round, but yeah. whatever, they would flash... Statistics on the screen that had numbers of people who had died of HIV or hunger and all kinds of other maladies. It's weird when a party band does that. But, you know, they were trying to stay relevant. And then you look at the lyrics to the song and you're like, what? Yeah. This is another song that's all about getting it, having sex. This is an album full of fuck songs, Kyle. This is the fuck song out of the fuck songs. (laughs) How do you make this political? This is...
2: I have two points of view on this. So, first of all, yes, it is a fuck song. And you know what? Here's a little clip of the fuck song so you can join in the fuck.
1: How do you make this political? You just put a bunch of numbers up there. No one cares. Sexist politics. But you are saying, pull it, pull Matthew. it, trigger the gun, because the best is yet to come. Dude. So. Uh, Matthew, pronounce
2: it right, please. I'm
1: oh, sorry. Come. Um, Thank you. But it does have some lovely guitar work in it by it Steve does. Clark. Steve Clark, snake bit. Ooh, snake bit. Steve, uh, Steve Clark had some problems. Uh, so mm. like so many rock and roll figures. You know, he had substance issues, namely alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, They tried interventions with him. They sent him to rehab, uh, but he would leave every time and resume drinking. So they gave him a six-month leave at one point, told him to go home, enjoy the lovely house he just bought with the money from this record. But instead of unpacking, he would just go to the pub and start drinking. Yeah. At one point, his blood alcohol level was 0.59. Jesus Christ. Which is crazy to think how much you have to drink to get it that high. Uh, And I think at that point, you just might be too far gone to come back. Yeah. Uh, He passed away on January 8th, 1991 at the age of 30 of alcohol poisoning. Uh, And it's just terrible. And uh, that would be the main reason the follow-up for Hysteria would be delayed for so many years. It's mm-hmm. a terrible story, but not uncommon in the rock and roll world, unfortunately. Now you made all my jokes sad. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> I was about
2: to say, yes, Matthew, I agree with you. This is definitely, I think this song might be about sexual
1: intercourse. Oh, I think it is.
2: And then on top of that, uh, the thing that made me the most sad about this song in researching it yeah. was how many sources online have to point out... That Armageddon it sounds like I'm getting it, <laughs> and I'm getting it refers to sex.
1: Well, they just don't want you to miss it. <laughs> they have to, yeah, you gotta point it out.
2: I oh, mean, they don't. Armageddon it means sex? <laughs> I have no idea. They,
1: they don't. They <laughs> just want you to.
2: <laughs> oh my God. They just want you to be clear. Uh, well,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh,. Gods of War? Yeah. uh, An anti-war, anti-nuke song. Yeah. Maybe. We Uh, begin the long slog through the back of this record. Yeah,
2: there's a little bit of a weird middle point in this record that
1: All right, a side that really has no hits except for the title track. Uh, And now if you're going to show political shit on the screen during your concert, this is the song to do it on. Yes. Uh, This is as political as they will get. And people gave them shit for it because they're the party band, right? You can't take them seriously. Yeah. Pour pour some sugar on me, man. Not this war, (laughs) Reagan, political garbage. Uh, And the critics derided them for this song. And Elliot was pissed about it, and rightly so. Uh, He had this to say. He said, I can write Gods of War. Oh, yeah, another heavy metal Holocaust song. People won't look past the ends of their noses. They think we're all spinal tap or bad news. Nobody will pick up the details of Gods of War like they do on a Morrissey song. Yeah. And he's right. And he should have the right to write about headier subjects without catching flack for it.
2: Absolutely. The fact that people derided them for writing like a political song that was like, hey, maybe we shouldn't destroy each other. Right. That is such bullshit. Like, why would you... Why would you even bother to be upset about this song? I don't know. Because people are fucking idiots. But Here's a clip.
1: Oh, yeah. So remember when Right Now came out from Van Halen? Yes. And it had that video that had all the numbers of things that happened in the time it took to watch the video. So depressing. So number of people that died, amount that the national debt climbed, people rewarded them for that. And that was coming from the ultimate party ban. So if they could do it, why can't Def Leppard do it? Right. But as far as political songs go, it isn't great. (laughs) Compare that with a no, song from um, our last episode, song like Speak from Operation Mind Crime. Oh, There's yeah. just more meat on the bone than this song. So... Where the song gets a bit heavy-handed, though, is at the end of it, which you just played. First of all, it's another six-and-a-half-minute song. Yes, it is. Last minute or so is just war songs. Helicopter bullets, a little too much on the nose. And then it ends with actual tape of Reagan calling out terrorists. Yeah. Telling them they can run, but they can't hide. Uh,
2: You can run, but you can't hide.
1: I get the point. I just don't care for the execution.
2: Are you under the bed? <laughs> Are you hiding behind a bookcase? Re- Reagan
1: will find you. Reagan, uh, Reagan will smash you. Don't shoot. shoot. Shotgun.
2: Oh, no, wait. Don't shoot shotgun.
1: I guess you go back to what you do well, and that's this is, uh, get it songs.
2: Honestly, this is um, my least favorite song on the whole album. I hate the the intro to it, I hate the song, and I hate the end to it. This could be left off this album, and it would not lose anything.
1: Without a doubt. So my mom always told me that if I didn't have anything nice to say, then I shouldn't say anything at all. So you don't have
2: anything for this album. But I also
1: didn't listen to her all the time. Oh. So let's start with the beginning, Kyle. (laughs) Run for cover, don't shoot, shoot. Shoot. And then this weird, maybe distorted British voice, which based on what's happened thus far can only be Mutt Lang saying, she's so dangerous, and all I can do is slap my forehead. And I think it's fair to say that the second side of the record is the weaker side, but my goodness, it is a quick slide down. This is the worst thing on the record. And I would really like to find something nice to say because I want to be Matthew Schepansky music encourager, but I had a really tough time with this one. Matthew uh, yeah.
2: Schapansky, music encourager. That's the T-shirt. Yeah, I, we need to make those. Matthew Shapansky, <laughs> music encourager. I struggled
1: a lot with this song, like trying to get through it. And then I just, you know, oh, 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 you have it. You you have a clip of this song. Oh going. yeah, here, yeah, yeah. Here's a clip of this song. In fact, it's the intro.
2: Honestly, like I said, this song just does not make any sense to me. No. There's no reason for this song to be on here, especially after you've had two and a half years to ruminate on it and think, "What should we include in our album?" Right? How about this? Not this. Not this. Um, this one also, I think, would have made a terrible single. I don't see. Uh, it just bugs me. It bugs me, and I'm glad that you're on the same page as oh, terrible this one. On the whole, I know that I'm kind of, we're, we're both kind of shitting on this album a little bit. On the whole, I have to say, I got to say it right now. I'm not going to say it at the end. I enjoy this album.
1: There's it, nothing wrong with that. I've
2: got a story to tell. I'll save it for the end. Okay. But when I'm a little bit more sober, but uh, I'll save it. For, I'm not going to be more sober. Who am I kidding? I'm still drinking. <laughs> I hope you're watching the video of this. So, uh, should we point that out really quick?
1: Oh, hey. This is
2: this is the second episode we've ever videoed.
1: I know. And this is so, the first um, one that you've been this drunk.
2: I have been. This is, <laughs> I don't know. I forget what episode it was. I got real too far. We drank that like 11 point whatever beer.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah, we yeah. were all real hammered. Yeah, we were pretty hammered.
2: For some reason, uh, probably because Randy brought these. Yeah, these damn
1: growlers. Which is a
2: whole liter of beer, which I chugged. Uh, quite drunk right now. Let's continue. Run uh, riot? Oh, no. You got more on this? Don't shoot shotgun. Uh, this whole album, though. I actually enjoy it. And we'll get to why yeah, at please the end do. of this album.
1: But the next song, Run Riot. So we're getting a little bit better here, Kyle. Yes. But the steps are incremental. Uh, while the lyrics suck, again, mm-hmm. and I am reaching my limit of the sound of his voice draining the way it does, uh, musically, it is better than the last song. Yes. And as far as the guitar parts, it's actually pretty good. Honestly, Like I said in the previous episode, I always liked how two guitarists work together. Yeah. I don't think either one of them were world-changing players, but that doesn't matter, like I said. At this point of the record, though, it's starting to get a little stale or sterile. It is so clean, so polished, that nowadays, having the benefit of 35 years of other music, you long for a little grit, a little dirt. Yeah, And when this record came out, like we talked about in other episodes, this style was the style of the day because it was so different. I'm sure you read a lot of the same stuff I did. And what became apparent, besides how much influence Mutt Lang had on their songs and their sound, was that they rarely played songs as a band before recording them. Yes. And that is so weird. That is very weird. Bands around that era primarily just played to write. You'd jam together and find pieces that fit and worked Worked, and then you would work it out as a band and then go in the studio and record your parts and go play them live. They seem to work opposite of that. Stuff was written or pieced together, then individually recorded, and then they would go away and try to figure out how to play them. And the band has always sounded, for that reason, that this band has always sounded disconnected Mm -hmm. to me. And maybe that's why, that they seem like all solo parts in a song, not... A band playing together.
2: And weirdly, I think that's why this album as a whole sold so well and did so well. Because Mutt Lang knew, hey, these guys work as solo artists that kind of have to be brought together. That's why he did the whole every track is a single thing. Right. He knew ahead of time, if we take all these disparate pieces and bring them together in the right way... That involves a lot of studio work and a lot of post-production work. Yeah, there's a lot of magic going on. Not so much pre-production work. We can make something amazing. Mm -hmm. We can make another thriller. And I think that's exactly what he did with this. Right. He brought it together in a way where it's sort of, there's all these weird little disparate pieces. But like you said, they come together. The sound of the album is coherent. Yeah. And every single on this album does amazing. And a lot of these songs are still played all over the place today. Absolutely.
1: What does it sound like? Do you know?
2: It sounds a little bit like this.
1: Okay. I like the sound of that song. It's actually, it's much better. I just do without the words, but yeah, But the sound it, of the song is actually pretty good.
2: There's a pretty good guitar solo in this at about three minutes in. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of fun. I cannot believe this one did not make a single.
1: Yeah, it is odd. I, I think it would feel, have been a pretty good single. I feel
2: like this would have been a great single. This would have been the eighth single for this album. And the fact that it didn't do it is stupid, but right? hysta- it, maybe they were hysterical. Maybe- Maybe they, they could had have been. some hysteria. Hysteria. The title track, Baby.
1: Third single released. Mm-hmm. Got to number 10 in the States, 26 in the UK. And according to Phil Collin, the song is about spiritual enlightenment. And I will have to take his word for it because I hear a lot of babies in this song. There's a lot of babies on so, the song. Unless you are referring to the spirit as a baby, whatever. Um, I've always liked this song. But talk about hyper produced, though.
2: Oh, yeah. This
1: was one of the songs that Mutt Lang took a little too far. Uh, remember earlier I mentioned recording one note at a time and then mm-hmm. putting together in, to form a chord. This was the song that he did it on. And there are supposedly 11 guitar parts on this song. Good Lord. There are 40 background vocal tracks. Ugh. And while it all works, you know, it certainly doesn't detract from the song. I don't know that it adds to it either. And it's one of the songs I can actually understand Joe Elliott all the way through. Yeah. Wait, was it was weird. It, the,
2: the production on this one is definitely a little bit different than everything else on this album. And it's also another one of those songs where it just sort of happened. Uh, apparently, Rick Savage was working on a guitar part and he started to play uh, for Phil Cullen, who started to sing Out of Touch, Out of Reach. And then I Got to Know Tonight. And they just sort of put this song together.
3: <clears throat>
2: Here's a little clip. Ooh. To say about this song, if I'm honest. It's not a bad song. It's I like It's not it. a good song. It's right
1: here in the middle. I think it's a good song, but that's just me. Matthew, are you excitable? That's definitely not what I am, talking about this song, Kyle. <laughs> Repeated nine times. Nine? Nine Times, times at I the kid. top
2: of this album.
1: I kid, I kid. Maybe I'm not, though. Oh. At the beginning, I talked about this record being overproduced and bloated. You did. 62 Minutes. Here is <sighs> a song that should have just been left off the album, and left for an outtakes album down the road. But it's excitable. So just can it and bury it for later. Or maybe you release a live album 20 years later and the record label wants to add some unreleased material. It doesn't have to be good. Your fans who buy the album just want something new, something they haven't heard before. And you lay this one on them and say, new Def Leppard. And they go, yay! Are you saying that the fans are excitable? Yeah, but why put it on here? You had this record that is absolutely jam-packed to the gills with hits. Yes. Did you really think that this song was on par with those songs? And I'd like to know how much pressure they felt from Mutt Lang to make it this long.
2: Oh, probably a lot.
1: You know, he was the instigator to keep piling in songs. Hey, we don't have the limitations of vinyl anymore. We can just put a bunch more on there. Dump but, some more in here, fellas. But to what end? By the end, I have lost focus and interest- and you get the beginning of this song, which again has the menacing, low, distorted British voice saying, Are you excitable? Are you excitable? It's too much. And I know people love this record. I do. And I, I don't know that I hate it. I just don't like it. Because you got to know when enough is enough.
2: That wonderful, repeated, excitable nine
1: times uh, didn't do it for you? No. Nine times. Nine times. What just, is it? Go ahead. Here's a little clip. Oh, okay. Are you excitable?
3: Are you excitable? Are you excitable? Are you excited? Are you excited?
1: Bow down.
2: Matthew, please tell me this is played. I don't know anything about sports. Please tell me this is played at sporting events all the time. Never heard it. What the fuck? This should be this should be like when your team is starting to like it's the whatever the
1: It's the whatever.
2: What's the stretch where the things happen and your team's down? What? Like you don't your team doesn't have enough points to win the goal box or whatever. I don't know, sports. You know, in the late, the end of the game, where it's like the team could rally and make more points, but they don't do it, this should be the song, stand up, stand up, say yeah, and
1: the whole crowd stands up and starts
2: clapping, yeah, yeah, and then they rally the team, and then more points happen, and then your team wins?
1: Yeah, okay, there you go. You just described it.
2: That's what should happen. Isn't there a name for that in baseball?
1: No, rally. Oh,
2: okay, rally. You said rally. (laughs) (laughs) All right, <laughs> whatever. You're
1: right now boring, right? I,
2: yeah, I don't know. I, again, <laughs> literally sports, I'm like, yeah, the baseball's the one that's round and like this big. That's about right. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. You're doing it. I honestly think this should have been a single. I think it would have been a great single. The fact that it did not make single. Are you joking? Is, you know, I think this would have made a great single. <laughs> stand up, stand up, say yeah, say yeah. It would have been great.
1: You're right. It oh, yeah. been,
2: This could have been the eighth single. It got it got the mur- Murinal part. <laughs>
1: the Murinal.
2: The, what did I call it earlier? <laughs> yeah. Muriel? Muriel? Mur- I, I don't remember. It got that part, but it did not get the actual release. And I think this would have been great. All
1: right. I'll go. I, I agree. I'll, not I'll, a, I'll let not, you have it.
2: Not a wonderful song. No. But I think it would have been a great
1: single. Oh, you're probably right there.
3: Stand
2: up, stand up. Say yeah, say yeah.
1: So, uh, you got more? I, that's it. Oh, Love and Affection? Are you
2: excitable? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Love and Affection?
1: Closer of the Record. Closer of the Record. That's weird, because this song sounds remarkably like four other songs on the the album. Right? Because, again, you were completely out of ideas, and everything started to sound the same. So I found this on a site describing the song. Oh, boy. The lyrics describe the feelings, or lack thereof, behind a lustful one-night stand asking the partner if they can forego romantic feelings and tap into more instinctive desires. The background instrumentals further play on these two themes alongside the voices, with harder animalistic tones at the beginning of the chorus and lighter romantic ones echoing at the end. Oh, and I guess maybe if you listen to this song on an island and not at the end of an hour of the same stuff, maybe you can hear those changes. I, unfortunately, cannot after the hair metal assault.
2: That is, um... That is way too deep to consider this song. Right? Uh, This song is a
1: quick fuck and suck and leave. Right? And I know I'm a bit harsh, Kyle, but if you end this record after, say, Hysteria Mm -hmm. and drop Don't Shoot Shotgun, it is simply one of the finest pop rock albums of all time. And he would have had his thriller masterpiece, but because he tried to stuff it like a turkey, I lost interest. Here's a little clip. Whoever's grabbing him.
2: Decide for yourself. What do you think about that? (sighs) By the way, uh, in this song, he does say... You Got the Beat, Take a Chance on Me, not You Got a Big Dick, Take a Chance on Me.
1: Is that what you thought he
2: said? The first time I heard it, yes. Oh. I was like, "Well, You Got a Big Dick, Take a Chance on Me. Oh my, what is this song actually about? Turns out, no, it's no. about uh, s- straight people, which is disgusting.
1: So we <laughs> so we hope you stuck it out with us. Do uh, you have more? This is another one that w- should have been, uh, was not released as a single.
2: I think probably would have done okay as a single, and did eventually get a single cover for the Murinal.
1: <laughs> like I said, first side, add Hysteria, drop all the songs on the second side. Just put that record out. I think it's genius. That'd be a weird fucking record. Though. I think you sell. I think you sell forty million copies instead of twenty million copies. The whole
2: second side would just be smooth.
1: I know. You just That'd get be, rid of it.
2: It'd be weird. You'd put the needle down on it. It would it just, just kind of like <laughs> right across the right, whole just, thing and just end. Just to
1: get to hysteria. All right. Well. So we hope you stuck it out with us. I know sometimes it's not easy talking about an album Especially that is- Especially
2: when I'm drunk as fuck and I'm probably <laughs> rambling
1: on and talking about weird bullshit. <laughs> I admit it. Uh, uh You should too. It's not easy talking about an album that is renowned. It's not. And sold a gazillion records, but some of these things need to be said. I mm-hmm. encourage everyone- to listen to the whole thing. Oh, please do. And then tell
2: us what you thought about it. Right. Uh right. First of all, easiest way to get a hold of us, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, at audio judo on Twitter, uh, at audio underscore judo on Instagram. I know a lot of people are on there. Or if you really want us to respond to you, info at audio com. I know email is like old and like what old people like Matthew and Randy yep. and I use, yep. we respond to that almost instantly because it pops up on our phone and we're like, email from fan. <laughs> and then we respond to it. It's great. <laughs> so if you really want us to talk back to you, info at audio judo.com. He's got info, it. In, I got it. Info at audio I got it there. It's, it's good. I'm right? good. What else do we have to talk? What do, else do we have job. to talk about
1: before we wrap this one up? I encourage everyone to go listen to it, form your own opinion, or yeah. just go to a party and put on the best of hysteria. That might be a better choice. I
2: almost missed it too. I got to tell you the
1: quick story. Oh about yeah, your album. story.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know why this album is kind of important to me? I do not. So, uh, I grew up in the time period where MP3s were kind of becoming a thing. Yeah. Right. A lot of digital music. And I had this album on an actual CD that I had purchased in my CD player in my car for years just because it was the one CD that I had in my car, okay. Um, everything else was from my MP3 player, from my phone, right? And because of that, uh, when I very first started to date my the man who would eventually become my husband, this was the album that we listened to almost every time we went out because I didn't want to plug my phone in because that looked weird, and I didn't want to listen to the radio. So Aww. every time I would be like, hey, "I'll just." put on whatever CDs in there. And then we would listen to the beginning of hysteria almost every time. And by like the fifth or sixth date, he was like, why are we still listening to this album? <laughs> so
1: it's sentimental to it's you. It's a little sentimental to me. That's adorable. a little bit of a connection. Uh, uh, and See, I, I love that. And I wish, I wish you would have said that at the beginning I of thought
2: it. about saying this at the beginning and I, uh, I didn't have a good way to work it in. And it's, it honestly, like, like I said, it, it, I don't know if it's necessarily sentimental because it was on very quietly because we were always talking. And sure. And I was trying not to have that distracted. Yeah, but from, you, have a,
1: you have a personal connection There is a to connection it. there to it. And I think but, that's important because yes. it changes – your perception of music. It ch- it changes the way you hear things. It yeah. absolutely does. Uh, there are things that I get, I'll listen to now that I used to listen to when Heather was dating and go, what the hell was <laughs> I listening to this at all? And then I listened to it a little deeper. I'm like, oh, that's why I was listening to it. That's why. And it's not necessarily good music, but it's important to me and that's important yeah. to you. And that's awesome. Um, so like you said, he gave, gave you the socials. Um, uh, if you want to tell me that, you know, Serious, quite simply, the best piece of music ever put to tape, I probably won't listen to. But you could tell me. Um, You can. We have exciting new episodes coming out uh, about the Doobie Brothers, Jethro Tull, Green Day, and the Zombies. Uh, Oh, yeah. Please stay with us and tell your friends. And if you are interested in seeing this podcast, yes, I said seeing, you can find us on YouTube and probably a bunch of other places. But the smart thing to do is check our website at audiojudo.com and find the link there. Uh, Until next time, everybody, thanks for sticking with us. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: you do to achieve the American dream? The big house? The happy family? The money? What's your Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat?
3: Would I shop?
0: Would you kill?
3: Yes. <laughs> my mom is dead. My mom is right
0: there. From airship